Well, that wouldn't be the only hard penis you turn soft. Alright, all you movie junkies, it is time for the SLS Cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 129 of the SLS Cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, it is the Houghton and Seignette episode of the SLS Cast because it turns out that this little itty bitty camera called the Houghton and Seignette E2 was produced way back in the day. And it had a special film, special roll-type film produced from 1912 to 1951. And that roll film format, 129. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, with that little bit of camera-esque knowledge, this is, of course, Matt. And coming to us from the soul-inhabiting Sony television in the Bowen living room, it is, of course... Tim, I like how you said camera, because you you said it. It was like a camera. Oh, camera. Stressing on the wrong syllables or something, I guess. Or it's the crack. I mean, it could, and, it could yes, be that also. Could, it could be the crack. Yes. Yeah. Or crack. it could be all the rain. You're like drowning over there, down there, over and down. Oh yes, yes. Here we are. Uh, yesterday, of course, was Memorial Day, and in honor of all of our fallen soldiers um apparently a flood was required so it, we got 11 inches of rain last night it was it was crazy um thankfully my area was my immediate surrounding area was pretty much spared uh, there was some localized flooding, but nothing too terrible in our neighborhood. The streets were dry this morning when the sun came up. Unfortunately, my fence line was completely blown down and everything and all the high winds and stuff. So that's going to be fun to deal with. But um, yeah, it was great. It was great. And then, of course, I had the car accident a month ago. And we finally got the car back yesterday. Uh, the guy at the at the collision shop literally just stopped by to do some paperwork. And he was like, look, I'm closed, but I, I mean, I've got to be there to do a little bit of paperwork. So I'll, I'll let you come and get your car. I was like, awesome, awesome. So we went down yesterday to go to get the car. And now the car's fucking up again. <laughs> and we already turned in the rental car. So I'm really kind of, yeah. We're having we're having fun, and it, and and we were able to put both of our vehicles in the garage last night. So they were dry, no no rain, wind, anything. They were, you know, and yet still, it's. Have you thought about a horse and buggy, or maybe just just have your car take out the engine and just strap on a, on a few Clydesdales and call uh, it a life? Yes, a la Back to the Future Part Three. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. You can wear that, the Stetson, your vest. I still have... I would call you I Doc Quentin. Uh, one of my Stetsons back there. I, I actually, when we were moving, I finally donated my straw hats. But I, I still have my felt. So, Quick question. Mm. Why do you have a straw hat, let alone hats made out of straw? Were you a farmer? I was a shit kicker and rodeo rider for a long, long time. Are you uh, seriously? You were? Yeah, dead serious. When well, I was, I look, look, Tim. I, I know it's hard to believe, 
But you've seen the pictures from my <laughs> wedding uh, with Jen, where I well, was no, I just, no, I just skinny, where I was moderately skinny then. You know, because I am, I am a super huge, you know, ten thousand pound fat fuck nowadays. So no, I it's just you. You, you have you have like all these rabbits in your hat that you're pulling out. Like next, <laughs> I'm expecting you to say, "Oh, I used to work for the FBI." No, you know, I did, however, uh, build the. Um, Eiffel Tower. I get that. No, okay. no. The, I did have a. I did have a part time. Get well, not part time. I, I did for a time build the lenses for the missile guidance systems for like, you know, bombs and nuclear rockets and shit. So back to the cowboy <laughs> thing. Why? Why the straw hat and not like a regular? You know, what, That's what, what I said. in I my both. mind, a regular cowboy I had hat. Both. I, okay. I, I, Was it more uh, like um, lightweight or? No, okay. So it's basically, honestly, it's because of season. That that you go you go through season. So in the spring and summer, you use a straw hat, and it's basically because it is um, typically lighter and also um, cooler to wear for your you know daily running around and doing chores on the on the ranch and the farm or rodeo or what have you. And then in the fall and the winter, you wear your felts. And then, of, uh, the exception of that is usually formal events. You would wear a felt no matter what time of year that that is. So, yeah, had a couple of resist all um, straw hats and a Stetson felt. Do you have pictures? And I'm going to I'm going to see a video of you <laughs> roping some cattle, um, tying down a hog. I don't know. I'm sure I've got pictures still and. My ex-wife, as far as I know, uh, might have some pictures. I don't know. But uh, to my knowledge, there is no video, unfortunately. Because this was back in, like, you know, this was literally 20 years ago, 19 years ago. So, um, yeah. Wow. From about the ages ages of 19-ish to about 22. Two twenty-three in there, yeah. And were you in Texas at this time? No. Well, no, we're about... I got to Texas. I got to Texas when I was twenty-two. So there was some. There, there was a. I, I was drifting in and out at that point. Which state did you do? Oregon, all this in? Uh, Oregon, and Washington State. Really? Oh, that's interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't realize this until uh, I went to the San Luis Obispo area last year but it's that's actually cowboy town kind of like there's a ton of ranches and uh, i'm I'm not saying that i think all the cowboys are in texas god no i know that but i didn't realize how many there were in on the west coast especially in northern california and washington and oregon so very interesting that's 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 awesome man there's actually um uh, a big big part of the pro rodeo tour takes place in Oregon. So there's a couple of really big stops there. I'm going to sign you up. <laughs> it does take a special kind of stupid to strap yourself to 2,000 pounds of pissed off hamburger. I will say that. But anyways, now that we've delved into all of the weird shit that I have done, well, well, we can go back to the missile guidance stuff later. But what about you, sir? How's your week been? Uh, Well, I am not a cowboy. I went to San Diego. Uh, that was fun. I've never been to San Diego, uh, and we went down and stayed on the kind of the outskirts in the La Jolla uh, area. Ate some good food. Was in a hotel there by the beach. 
Went to the San Diego Zoo, which is by far the best zoo I've ever been in. That's only the third zoo I've ever been in. But hey, I'm told by all the websites that it is the number two zoo in the world. Just trailing Singapore Zoo. Uh, It's just awesome, man. It's just such a cool, cool zoo. Have you ever been to San Diego or the San Diego Zoo? I have been uh, to San Diego briefly. Um, My dad and stepmom, when they were married, actually lived in Vista, which is a suburb of San Diego. Been to the San Diego Zoo. I actually, while the San Diego Zoo, I don't know. I think San Diego Zoo just gets it because it's... It's so well-known. They're an amazing zoo. But for me, my money was always Metro Zoo in Miami. That's, a, that's like probably the, my favorite zoo that I've ever been to. And I have been to awesome zoos and not-so-awesome zoos. Denver, um, Point Defiance in Tacoma, uh, the Portland Zoo there in Oregon. The Reno Zoo. San Diego, <laughs> um, Dallas, Houston. Houston Zoo is pretty good. I always like the yeah, Houston, Houston Zoo. is all right. But I, the San Diego Zoo, you can get freaking lost in that place. You it's, sure can. There's so much stuff. I'm, it now, like I would, I'm actually Park. jealous, though. I'm jealous of that because I would much prefer to go to the San Diego Zoo than the Houston Zoo any, any day of the week and twice on Sundays. Well, sure, yeah. And I think people would rather go to the San Diego Zoo than going to SeaWorld, where animals aren't quite as treated as bad <laughs> I don't know. I, I, it's, it's one of those things where they're more or less, while, while SeaWorld is definitely more profit-driven than a traditional zoo, um, they are both, in my opinion, necessary evils, so to speak, because they do a great deal of good in promoting the welfare of the of our of the animals of the earth teaching kids about it and and hopefully you know inspiring them and creating the next round of biologists and zoologists and what have you but make no mistake none of those animals should be there i mean you know well i guess i'm just going off the whole what was it the black black sea the documentary about how Shamu and all oh, the other black killer fish, whales are the being one, treated. Yeah, it, yeah the blackfish. It, yeah, that or was supersized yeah. me of SeaWorld. <laughs> so, um, Unlike the SLS cast, where animals are always treated inappropriately. Yeah. No, no, it's just anytime you have such a unfiltered, one-sided documentary, it's usually full of shit. And sure enough, within like eight months of Blackfish coming out, all the fucking bullshit that they did to put to produce it started coming out. And now most people are like, most people dismiss Blackfish, uh, much like Super Size Me was derided. I don't know so. about most people. It might definitely be half and half by now. I mean, to be honest, I really haven't heard much about. Well, I mean, it's died down. It's been like two years now. I mean, so it's yeah, it's. I mean, the controversy's kind of over. Same with like Supersize Me from like you know ten years ago, or whatever. But yeah. So for those of you who do not know, the SLS cast is partly sponsored by FEMA. <laughs> and what's the complete opposite of, of FEMA? Uh, um, African rainforest 
cutter downers? I, I don't know. I don't know what, they're, well, what to call know. them. FEMA isn't poachers. FEMA, brought uh, to you by is, poachers. Isn't FEMA like Federal Emergency Management Association or oh, something? Oh, did I call them FEMA? PETA. PETA. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure they'd love to know that they just got compared to FEMA. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. <sighs> but I am glad you had a good time in San Diego. We have definitely wasted far, far too much time. So would you like to get to the news, sir? Yes, please. All right, here we go, folks. It is the news. <laughs> First up for me, from Variety.com, via Alex Stedman, It loses director Carrie Fukunaga, um, and to be clear, It, the film. New Line's feature adaptation of Stephen King's It has lost its director. Carrie Fukunaga has dropped out of the project as director sources confirmed on Monday. The True Detective director exited the project this weekend. It was set up to be split up into two films, and sources say New Line was considering making only one movie due to budget concerns. Fukunaga, however, was adamant about making two picks. They could not agree on a budget, causing Fukunaga to clash with the studio. Production was originally set to move forward this summer, but is now stalled. Additionally, it was revealed earlier this month that Will Poulter is in talks to play the evil clown Pennywise in the horror. Older actors Mark Rylance and Ben Mendelsohn were also in the mix for the role. What do you think there, sir? Well, it's a shame because I know he's been really looking forward to making this movie. I mean, it was supposed to be split up into two movies and he was very adamant that he was going to be the one that would that would do all-around justice to telling the story. And it's kind of a bummer. I mean, I would have liked to have seen it uh, just because of his will and passion uh, towards the material. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I have the uh, original television miniseries on DVD. And I mean, it's like, I want to say it's like four and a half hours, five hours, because they did it over like four nights or whatever. So um, it's, yeah, and there's just no way you could do it as a single film. It's just, you, you can't. There's way too much ground to cover, way too much stuff, and I think it's, and it really needs to be at least two films. So, I, if this thing comes out and it is one film, it's just going to suck. Anyway. From CNN.com, uh, this is an article written by Cade Metz from Wired. The Netflix of China is invading the United States with smartphones. That is right. When I described LETV as the Netflix of China, Mark Lee corrects me. Quote, it's the other way around, he says. Netflix is the LETV of the U.S. End quote. He has a point. LETV launched its internet video streaming service three years before Netflix. 2004 versus 2007. It was producing original movies in series long before Netflix rolled out House of Cards. And in recent years, the Chinese behemoth has expanded in ways Netflix hasn't. It sells TV set-top boxes and smart TVs, devices that can help you watch all that video. 
Quote, we want to control the screens too, says Lee, the ex-Googler who is head of data analytics at Lee TV, a company with a $12 billion market cap. The company will soon move into the United States, encroaching on Netflix. Lee will lead the effort, bringing LETV's video streaming service, its original programming, its Apple TV-like setup boxes, its smart TVs, and now smartphones. LETV announced its entry into the Chinese smartphone market in April, and according to Lee and his colleague J.D. Howard, the company plans to offer phones in the United States by year's end. Quote, we're going to be building a big presence here, end quote, says Howard, a former executive with Chinese computer maker Lenovo, referring to the west coast of the United States. It's an audacious move, given the dominance of Apple and Google in the stateside smartphone market, and the limited track record of Chinese tech companies in the U.S. But as Lee and Howard explain it, LETV isn't a smartphone company. It's an internet video company. The phones are a way of delivering the video. Quote, What's going to be critical, Howard says, is what you use your smartphone for. End all quotes there. And the article goes on. That was not even half of it. And they go into more depth about LETV and what they're planning on doing. And I highly recommend this to all you that are interested. I personally think that uh, it's kind of important for there to be competition with Netflix. Although I love Netflix, and it kind of kill, it pains me to say that, but I think it's smart. I think it'll keep Netflix uh, uh, working towards the user's best interest. You know, it'll keep a monopoly from happening, you know, which uh, in some ways people do see that Netflix already does kind of have a monopoly besides there already being like Hulu. I think maybe it's bigger competitor or biggest competitor, which is uh, Amazon Prime. Matt, what do you think? Do you embrace this idea of LETV or Lee TV coming into the U.S.? Yes, I am fine with that for the same reason. I mean, everybody loves Netflix um, because they give the customers what they want. They try, they always try to do their best to make sure that people are happy, but let's not forget the, you know, the quicksir thing that happened a couple years ago where they tried to split off the DVD service and everything. Um, so they're not, uh, they're not, a spotless track record, so to speak. But sure. uh, the second that they do capture the entire market, then yeah, they're going to turn into Comcast. So you have to, I mean, and it's the natural evolution of things. So uh, for as long as it is possible to delay that happening, I'm all for it. Uh, even if it's, if it's minor things where Netflix um, sees the things that LETV is doing and mimics it until it forces LETV to go out of business, even even that, as bad as it would be and sad for that company, would still be better than LETV not coming in at all. So, so what do you what do you think about the the TV setup boxes and smart TV devices and stuff like that? So you, you're okay with that though, because even that that's kind of like, well, if you want our product, well, you might as well buy this product and buy this product. I mean, they they make it clear that he's wanting to make a lot of money off people. Well, sure, but what what's going to end up happening though is or at least what I foresee happening is there's going to be one or two really badass features 
that are contingent upon these boxes or something that Netflix is going to be able to adapt um, and put it into something that you already have, like your tablet, your iPad, your your smartphone. And they're going to be able to figure out a way to integrate it that way. And then that's going to put that side of it out there. But, I mean, I'm game. You know, I'm, I'm at least willing to entertain the idea and see what the products are and what they come up with and how they're actually going to be, you know, interfaced with the user here. I can personally say that um, we don't have any kind of set-top box or anything like that um, because we have a Wii U. Most people have one or more console systems who are into gaming or anything of that nature, um, like your PS4, your Xbox One, your Xbox 360, what have you. And all of those things can integrate the things that like your Roku has. Um, so... I don't know if the physical side of that is going to be as much of a draw as he thinks it is. But, again, if they have some cool things that go with it, then we'll see how it goes. All right. Well, from another interesting perspective of people who want to make money, this comes to us from businessinsider.com.au. And this is coming to us via Peter Farquhar. Hollywood special effects legend Rick Baker is selling his Gremlins, Hellboy, and Batman creations in a huge collectibles auction. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, you too can wear the red right hand of doom. Up. Hollywood special effects legend Rick Baker is selling some of his most memorable creations in an auction this weekend. Baker is the Hollywood uh, special effects go-to guy who has dominated the Academy Awards for most of his career, winning Best Makeup and Hairstyling seven times since 1982 for his work on An American Werewolf in London. Harry and the Hendersons, Ed Wood, The Nutty Professor, Men in Black, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, and The Wolfman. Not to be confused with Wolf Cop. You can add to that list effects and makeup duties for Star Wars, Exorcist, Michael Jackson's Thriller Video, Planet of the Apes, X-Men, Tropic Thunder, and most recently Maleficent to his impressive resume. But he rates his work on Harry and the Hendersons as one of his proudest achievements. Um, And also, Harry's costume is one of the items for sale when the auction begins at 4 p.m. on Saturday, May 30th, A.E.S.T., So I'm assuming that's Australian Eastern Standard Time. And they've got some really cool stuff. Now, there is a complete listing available at the prop store where you can go. But the article here, uh, I definitely would uh, recommend you go check it out. Businessinsider.com.au for Business Insider Australia, obviously. They've got like the servo-operated Lenny Mogwai puppet from Gremlins 2. Which they expect to to get around six to eight thousand dollars. The prototype Michael Jackson robotic transformation face from Moonwalker, which they expect to get two to three thousand. Um, you get the hairy head, hands, feet, and muscle suit from Harry and the Hendersons, which they expect to go from four to six thousand um, dollars. The full size alien Edgar Bug animatronic character from Men in Black which they expect to go for like $40,000 and all sorts of cool stuff, stuff from Batman forever, including Jim Carrey's uh, Riddler face mask. <laughs> um, there's just really neat stuff in here and I highly check it out. And if you're interested and you've got money to throw around, then why not? 
you do you have money to throw around, Tim? Are you gonna are you gonna bid, you know, on Hellboy's right hand of doom mock up? Which you know, is I, I, just I do. six to eight hundred dollars. I think two dollars. I'll, <laughs> I'll throw towards it. See where that goes. Go. Maybe I can get a shaving from from a prop. Who knows? And now Here's it just freckle. has a dollar amount here in this uh, in the article, and so I'm going to assume that these are Australian dollars. Which, if that's the case, that's really like three to four hundred U.S. dollars. See, so now it, it just got even cheaper. Oh. That helps my case out completely. <laughs> awesome. All right, sir, what else you got? For years, ever since I was a young kid and first watched the Johnny Quest animated film that was made for USA, the TV, the TV station. I don't know. Is USA even a TV station anymore? I think it's like WGA or WGN or something like that. They made a TV movie, TV animated movie called Johnny's Golden Quest. Back in 93, I think. And I effing loved that. I was like five years old and I always wanted there to be a live action Johnny Quest movie. And for years, they've been talking about doing a live action Johnny Quest movie. Uh, They had directors involved. They've had actors involved. They've had uh, Steven Spielberg was involved for a period of time and nothing actually happened. Well, for those of you like me who really love Johnny Quest, from the HollywoodReporter.com... Robert Rodriguez tackling Johnny Quest for Warner Brothers. That is right, and that is not USA made for TV either. And it says this, Robert Rodriguez has come aboard the Adventure Project, an adaption of the classic Hanna-Barbera cartoon, which has been dormant for the past several years. Moving the Warner Brothers adventure along is Terry Rozio, whose credits range from the Pirates of the Caribbean movies to The Mask of Zorro. Rodriguez and Rocio are rewriting the script, initially penned by Dan Mazou, with Rodriguez on board to direct Dan Lin and Adrian Ascaria, A-S-K-A-R-I-E-H, are producing. I'll just end that there. I am excited for it. I'm a big fan, and I really hope this pulls through. And I really hope it's, you know, a modestly budget movie. Unlike Robert Rodriguez's movies like uh, not just Machete, but even Spy Kids, where his ideas are large, but the scope of the film itself is pretty refined and kind of restricted due to the lack of budget that some of his movies normally has. So hopefully he gets a bigger budget and he's able to give you a really cool, not necessarily an epic, but like a fun adventure, classic adventure film that... I, I grew up loving, so I'm excited for this. Matt, were you ever a Johnny Quest fan growing up? Yes. I wanted to be Johnny Quest and never his sidekick, because I thought his sidekick was kind of lame. Spoken from a true CIA operative. <laughs> I'm sorry, I did. I just thought his, I thought his, I thought his uh, buddy was just, I, did, I just thought his buddy was lame. And, and like me and my brothers would play, and nobody wanted Nobody wanted to be. Everybody wanted to be Johnny. So, uh, yeah. That sounds pretty cool, though. Is it because he was Indian? No. It's. Look at him and watch how he acts and behaves and everything. And he really is just there to make Johnny Quest look good. I mean, he's just. All he's there to do is make him look good by comparison. So, yeah. Do you know who they're going to have play him? Not a clue. Danny Trejo. 
I'm kidding. Right. It's Haji. Yeah, Haji's the uh, the guy's name. There and Bandit's go, the dog. You. All right. All right. Well, this is the uh, this is my last piece of news here from hitfix.com. Uh, in this particular section of the site is called The Dartboard via Chris Eckertson. Star Wars writer Lawrence Kasdan tells it like it is. Blockbuster movies are getting too long. Let's face it. Blockbuster blockbuster movies are getting too long. And the worst offenders in this regard include such A-list directors as Christopher Nolan, The Dark Knight Rises at 165 minutes, Michael Bay, Transformers Age of Extinction at 165 minutes, and James Cameron, Avatar at 161 minutes. And can you imagine how long those sequels are going to be? I like the way this guy writes. I do. This is kind of... You know, I, I, I feel like I'm sitting in the room listening to him talk like this. And, you know, it's kind of cool. Thankfully, we have a high-profile savior in Star Wars, the Force Awakens screenwriter Lawrence Kasdan, who promises that the J.J. Abrams-directed sequel won't represent a cinematic endurance test in a new interview with Vanity Fair. Quote, This new movie, first of all, it's turning out really great. J.J. directed it so beautifully, and it's so exhilarating in everything. It's a big movie. It's full of wonderful stuff, incident and character stuff, and jokes and effects. One of the things that we always refocus on from the get-go was that it was not to be one of these very long, bloated blockbusters. A lot of very entertaining movies lately are too long. In the last 20 minutes, you think, why isn't this over? We didn't want to make a movie like that. I mean, we were really aiming to have it be, when it's over, you'll say, I wish there was more. Or, wait, is it over? Because how rarely you get that feeling nowadays. And I think we're headed there. But it means that there will be constant critical look at it, looking at it from now to the end saying, do we need this? Do we need that? Is it better if this comes out even though we love it? Killing your darlings, end quotes. Now, Mr. Egerton goes on to say, I trust Lawrence to make good on this, particularly given his past history with the Star Wars franchise. Two previous entries he co-wrote, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi, clocked in at a much more reasonable 124 minutes and 131 minutes, respectively. Of course, director J.J. Abrams will have the final say, but his longest-running film, 2013 Star Trek Into Darkness, was only 133 minutes. So what do you think, Tim? Is is Mr. Egerton on the right track? Uh, is it, and, and also in his um, echoing the sentiments of Lawrence Kasdan that blockbusters are getting too long as a whole? Well, yes, I do agree for the most part. Um, and I think with a condensed running time, it will help filmmakers pick and choose exactly what they want to show within that, you know, that span of time. But I think it also depends on the movie and the story that they're trying to tell. Because I've seen movies like, uh, well, like Inception, for example. I mean, that movie is like two hours and 20 minutes long. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't imagine that movie being shorter because of how they use that time to tell that story. Um, But then you have movies like The Avengers, all the all the you know Avengers and Avengers Age of Ultron. Then you have the third Batman movie. You know a lot of those, at least to me, just feel over long. And especially with the Avengers, you have these big grandiose action scenes. Not just one, but you have like three huge ass fight scenes that that happen. 
So I think if you say, or if they decide, like, hey, you know what, we're going to make an Avengers movie or a superhero movie, that's an hour and 50 minutes or an hour and 45 minutes, maybe they'll, you know, like I mentioned just a second ago, they'll pick and choose which scenes to actually expand on and to actually go over the top. You know, it's like whenever you watch a good movie or a good thriller, you know, it starts off and then it builds, 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 builds until the end of the movie where the big reveal happens or the thrilling aspect surfaces. And that's just the, it's like the encompassing moment of that film. And I think that's what a lot of action movies are lacking nowadays is that moment close to the end of the movie where you're just, you know, you're at the edge of your seat. And I think maybe a shorter runtime could achieve that effect with some of those movies out there. All right. Very good. I, too, agree that as much as I really enjoy a full and engrossing movie experience, that it needs to be reserved for truly large tales. Like, for example, It. It is a movie that I could see, even breaking into two parts, something that would need to be like two hours and two and a half hours for both ends to really get everything done. But just because, oh, look, it's a $200 million movie, so we should totally just make it three hours just because. I, I agree. It, it, We can't go down that road anymore. So, Anyways, well, that was my news, so bring us home uh, with whatever it is you got. All right, so lastly, due to time, I'm not going to go in-depth at all on this article. Uh, I'm just going to read kind of through the, the first little paragraph here. Paragraph here. This is from IndieWire.com, and, it, and the article is entitled, Attention Filmmakers, Here's How to Make a Million Dollar Movie for Thousands. This is written by Eric Hines. And uh, this is for all you listeners out there, you seven of you who are inspiring actors or directors, filmmakers, or what what have you, and are really interested in making a movie and don't fully understand or realize that you can just pick up your home video camera and make a film with that. Because I've actually seen movies or heard of movies that have been bought for millions of dollars that were only made on an iPhone or that were made on a Canon 5D or 5 or Canon it's a Canon 5D I think but that's a that's a photography camera that they're using to shoot movies on so you can do it with anything with your household camera even just not a flip phone but this is what this article says at least this first paragraph here some movies are just as expensive as they seem. At the high end, you have films like Avengers Age of Ultron, which they pay their actors $10 million a picture, and it has these over-the-top special effects. And at the low end of the spectrum, there's the early films of Joe Swanberg, which were famously made for the price of a few dozen sandwiches, and also looked like it. But other movies are harder to read. Thanks to advancements in digital technology, as well as increasingly savvy production strategies, professionally shot, acted, and edited films can be made on shockingly low budgets. But that can be easier said than done. How can a first-time filmmaker make the most of limited resources and make a small film feel big? Well, this article kind of guides you through that. I'm just going to mention some of the key points here they say choose a project that can be realized inexpensively and then stay within your means another one here is when your crew members are making little to no money make sure they have skin in the game so that means not just giving your crew members pizza 
during a shoot, actually like give him a part of the movie, you know, like, oh, you know, you're not paying him, but hey, you know what? If my movie makes money, I'm going to cut you into it, into the deal as well, since you're working. And it's not just my movie, it's our movie. You can't skimp and save on everything. Everything but sound. And there's some other good ones, good little tips on here as well. It's a pretty lengthy article, and I highly suggest all you amateur filmmakers out there to check it out, because it's something that a lot of people, especially when you go to film school, they don't really teach you about this stuff, because they want you to go out there and make it big, so their school will be recognized. And I'm talking about kind of the more higher-end schools uh, I know in, I took a couple of film classes or uh, media production classes in community college. And because of the community college that I went to, they taught you how to make things on a smaller and lower budget. Even in high school, I, I was taught how to do this as well. Because while well, these classes didn't have the budget to teach us how to make and to show us how to make these big Hollywood pictures. So it's very interesting. And the last thing I'm actually going to say about this is just this one little quote that I think sums up this entire article that, quote, the passion translates. If you have passion for the project, it comes across, end quote. And I think whenever you're making a film, especially for indie filmmakers, that I think this gives you the upper hand over some of the big Hollywood movies is the passion. You know, because a lot of filmmakers in Hollywood just don't have the passion and it comes across in their movies. And because you're an indie filmmaker and an amateur filmmaker, you can make most of the decisions yourself and it'll be your, it'll truly be your movie. And of course, it belongs to your crew members as well, like I mentioned before, I suppose. But you are the visionary. Definitely look it up. It's from IndieWire.com. Attention filmmakers, here's how to make a million dollar movie for thousands. Written by Eric Hines. And that's about it. Awesome. Awesome. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the news and to our bonus segment. I'm the only one who liked it. Who is the one that liked this movie? Not me. Who is the one that wants to watch again? Oh, you? Who is the one that wants to watch the movie? That was stupid. I'm the only one that liked it. That's me, folks, watching the movie. Oh man. I like that movie and nobody else did. Yeah. All right, so... Who is the one that liked this movie? Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. Good old I'm the only one who liked it. Okay, well, my pick for I'm the only one who liked it is a very uh, small production from 1988. It's a British comedy film, and it is called Without a Clue, directed by Tom Eberhardt and stars Michael Caine and Ben Kingsley. Now, this movie is a... Um, I don't. I'm so tired. I wanted. I keep wanting to say Shakespeare, and it's not Shakespeare. It's nothing to do with Shakespeare. It's Sherlock Holmes. This is a Sherlock Holmes flick, and what they've done is they ask and answer the question: What would it be like if Sherlock Holmes was a dunce and Watson was really the brains? Now. Watson is played by Ben Kingsley, and Sherlock Holmes is played by Michael Caine. And it's just, oh my God, so many amazing one-liners in here. (laughs) 
Michael Caine is an out-of-work drunk actor who Ben Kingsley is forced to hire to to portray the Sherlock Holmes so that he can so that he can pursue his own career and unfortunately he ends up getting trapped working with Sherlock, you know, with this terrible actor. Um they then have to pretty much save the entire economic world of this time period because someone um has stolen the uh, Bank of England's 10 pound plates. And that's, that's the movie. So you, it's just absolutely funny. One of the best movies I've ever seen in terms of taking an established uh, genre and just completely turning it on its head. Great performances by, uh, ben Kingsley and Michael Caine. Jeffrey Jones is also in this. He is actually he actually plays uh, Inspector Lestrade, so that's awesome. And the movie itself didn't really do a whole heck of a lot of business, even for its day. Um, it it did eight and a half million at the box office. It is, however, um, considered fresh on Rotten Tomatoes today. It's also it's also found on quite a lot of. Uh, reviewers top 10 lists the exception the notable exception being Roger Ebert he only gave this film two out of four stars but I just think this movie is absolutely hilarious and anytime that I find someone who is a big Sherlock Holmes fan I always ask him have you seen this movie and most of the time it's a big no so it's really great to experience this movie again with someone who's never seen it before and I cannot recommend it enough. I absolutely love this movie without a clue. From 1988. It's awesome. What do you got for us there, Tim? So real quick, have you heard of uh, Ian McKellen's Mr. Holmes movie that's coming out? No, I've not heard of it. Where he plays a very, an older Sherlock Holmes and he has one last mystery to solve. Nope. Oh. Not familiar with it at all. Alrighty, so before... Pirates of the Caribbean, which came out in the year 2003, the genre of film, which is known as the pirate genre, (laughs) was dead in the water, no pun intended. For eight years, it was dead in the water, and that was due to one single movie, and that movie was entitled Cutthroat Island from 1995, and this one was directed by Rennie Harlan. Those of you who know Rennie Harlan would know him from Cliffhanger. That's what he directed. And he also directed Die Hard 2. So he is well known for these big, awesome, classic, 90s classic action movies. Now, for those of you who don't know, because, you know, this movie costs $115 million to make, but it only made back $10 million. So, you know, I'm pretty sure none of you know what this movie's about. It is about the hunt for a buried treasure. This pirate acquires this map that leads whoever is seeking to a buried treasure. And so that old man, as he got older, he gave, he split the map up into three different pieces and divided it among his three sons. And as the years pass, one of the sons is on his deathbed. And right before he dies, he passes on his portion of the map to his daughter, played by Gina Davis. And her character is Morgan. And yes, she will become a captain and therefore her name will be... Captain Morgan. Well, as she's looking at this map and she has now taken over her father's ship, she realizes that she can't read the map because it is in Latin. 
and she hears about the one translator who can translate this map is about to be hanged. And this character, the convict, is named Shaw, and this one is played by Matthew Modine. He is the, apparently the only translator around who can translate this map. And so they purchase him, and it actually turns out he's not even a translator at all. He is really a criminal, a hardened criminal and a thief. Well, now that she has the translator who can kind of sort of translate Latin when he is not actually being a, you know, a liar or a convict, she goes on the hunt to look for the second piece of the map, which belongs to one of her other, I should say, nicer uncles. Well, while she is there to acquire his portion of the map, the town where she is in gets bombarded and raided by Dog, which is played by Frank Langella. And believe it or not, he is the, the, uh, the second uncle who is the mean one. He is the villain, and boy does he play the villain pretty damn well, in my own opinion. And so the movie goes off from there, you know, you have two people in search of this buried treasure. One of them is chasing the other one. You know, they get to this island where the treasure is at, and the adventure continues, you know, as they're on the island. And this might sound a little bit like Pirates of the Caribbean, pretty much all three of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, but keep in mind, this one came out a good almost a decade before the first Pirates of the Caribbean movie. Believe it or not, with a title like cutthroat island you would be surprised to know that it actually lives up to its name but then again maybe it's just me because like i mentioned earlier this movie was one of the most expensive films ever made back in 95 the budget was 115 million dollars when the movie was released it only made back 10 million dollars and that was only the u.s box office but still 10 million dollars that is ridiculous this movie not only helped bankrupt the studio uh, i think the studio was called a carlico studio and that was actually one of the studios that produced terminator 2 but it also nearly ruined the reputation and careers of rennie harlan the director as well as his then wife gina davis and matthew modine believe it or not i think matthew modine's career is still ruined by this movie Now, why didn't people like the movie? I think people didn't like this movie because it doesn't transcend multiple genres. It's a swashbuckling pirate adventure, unlike Pirates of the Caribbean, which is also a not only just a swashbuckling pirate adventure, but it's also a romance. It's a fantasy, and it's also supernatural in a way. And whereas Cutthroat Island goes for more of the classic you know, a swashbuckling, traditional family fun adventure type of film. Pirates of the Caribbean went for that supernatural, you know, where the violence was a little bit more fantasiful. You know, you have the skeletons fighting the humans. And it was more, I guess, entertaining for those that just wanted a good old fantasy. It appealed to more, it appealed to a, a broader spectrum of an audience to a broader audience. Whereas, again, Cutthroat Island, PG-13 violence with explosions and sword fights, and really the entertainment was just pure entertainment. And people often wonder why and how did this movie actually get made? And it was because after Cliffhanger, uh, the success of Cliffhanger and Die Hard 2, the studio basically told him, said, hey, you know, whatever movie you want to make, we'll fund it and you'll be able to make it because you are a bankable 
filmmaker. So he decided to produce one of his favorite genres of movies, and that is a pirate movie. And these are movies that he grew up watching as a kid. And, you know, in most of his movies, especially because they're action, he's been influenced by pirate films, by the swashbuckling, by the style of filmmaking and storytelling that those movies utilized. So he decided to do Cutthroat Island. He hired Gina Davis, which was, again, his then-wife, as the lead role of Morgan the Captain. The unfortunate thing with her is that I think she did a pretty damn good job in the movie, despite her horrible dialogue. I mean, it was pretty much the dialogue all around was pretty damn bad. It was wooden, it was stale, it really didn't add much to the movie, at times. I mean, it's kind of half and half for me, to tell you the truth. And then you have also Matthew Modine was cast as the oddball, you know, ham of the movie, which partly led to the unconvincing nature of his character's romance with Morgan later on in the film. Nobody bought, which Matt actually did a three squared when we covered the worst on-screen couples, and he picked Gina Davis and Matthew Modine from this film. And so it goes to show that some of the characteristics just really didn't add up together. There wasn't really that defining aspect between the two of them that made the audience understand like oh hey you know i think they should totally hook up now they were pretty much two negatives hitting each other away from one another pretty much throughout the entire movie until lo and behold there's a there's a romance happening and now we are down to why i like this movie this movie is just all around fun cutthroat island does not disappoint it touches on all aspects of a very good swashbuckling pirate movie. You have spectacular action pieces, and the final battle itself, it cripples any of the action scenes in all three, four of the Pirates of the Caribbean movies. And when it comes down to it, Cutthroat Island does not disappoint. We're only 5 to 10% of this movie bothers me a little bit. There's still 90% of fantastic fun to be had. On top of the fun and exciting throwback to childhood story, you have these visual elements as well. You have beautiful costumes. You have beautiful explosions that happen. I mean, some of the best explosions that have ever been featured in, on screen are in this movie. Some wonderful stunts. Yes, there's a corny robotic eel. Yes, Franklin Jella says a couple really corny one-liners. Same thing with Gina Davis and Matthew Modine. You know, his character could have been a little bit more, you know, witty. And there were a couple bad blue screen effects. But by God, is that ending battle scene fantastic. You know, it, it, it makes up for there not being, like, fantastic sword fighting throughout the entire movie. Everywhere you look, there's always something to look at. Whether it's the explosion while it's fighting happening to the left of the screen or the right of the screen in the foreground or the background. So much detail was put into this movie that is, it is literally a feast for your eyes. I definitely think that. It is a fantastic film. And on top of all of that, you have a great score by John Debney that would later be ripped off by Hans Zimmer with this heavily synthesized sound for the Pirates of the Caribbean films. And Debney's score, however, is reminiscent of the early Errol Flynn films as well as the great swashbuckling scores of the Golden Age of Cinema. And unlike the negative criticism the film itself generated, the score received high praise and it went on to be one of Debney's best soundtracks. And lastly, nearly 20 years after I first saw this movie with my dad in a movie theater, 
I remember the exact movie theater I saw it at. It's not there anymore, but it was off of I-45 in the Woodlands, Woodlands, Texas. I was able to see this movie again on the big screen. This movie came out December 22nd, 1995. I saw this March 22nd of this year. While watching this movie, and I haven't I haven't seen it before that for a while on DVD, because I think we bought it on DVD like in I don't know, 2000 or 2001. After watching this at the movie theater, I was assured that I actually do love this movie. Though, yes, it's littered with some bad dialogue and hammy one-liners, it's still prime popcorn entertainment. It has stellar scope, stunts, action, and it's just classic adventure. I honestly look forward to the next viewing of this movie. You know, and it also features some of the best explosions, again, that I've ever seen. It's mind-boggling, and it's just awesome. And I highly recommend it. And unfortunately, that is the reason why I'm the only one that liked this movie is because all the stuff I said 35 minutes ago. So I implore you, please watch this movie if you have never seen it. And if you only saw it once at the movie theater or once maybe 15 years ago, check it out again. I think you can. I went on Amazon earlier today and I noticed the Blu-ray is going for like five bucks. So it's a bargain. Go for it. Cutthroat Island. Cool. All right, well, that concludes I'm the only one who liked it. Next week, we're going to be doing a copycat throwdown. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be comparing two movies and finding out which one is better. In this instance, we have 1982's Annie versus 2014's Annie. Let's see which one comes out on top. And without further ado, that brings us to the movie. <laughs> So we got three movies this week. We've got 2015's remake of Poltergeist. We have Tomorrowland from Disney and Wolf Cop. Where do you want to start, sir? How about Wolf Cop? Let's let's start with the best. Okay. It's <laughs> just going to go seriously downhill from here. All right. This is a Wolf Cop Canadian horror comedy film written and directed by Lowell Dean. Stars... Um, Jesse Moss, Amy Matiso, Jonathan Cherry, Sarah Lind, Al, uh, Aiden Devine, Corin Conley, and Leo Fafard. And Leo Fafard is actually our uh, hero, as it were. Um, basically, we've got this guy. He's a just kind of a deadbeat cop, no good for nothing, alcoholic, and his name is Lou. He is investigating a slew of um I guess kids doing stupid stuff in his town when something goes awry in the middle of the forest at night and he awakes to find himself with the ability transform into a werewolf but can he control being a werewolf and what sinister forces are behind his becoming a werewolf and what do said sinister forces want to do 
with him. So this is the uh, basic idea behind Wolf Cop. Now, I was watching this movie. I actually uh, had convinced Jen to sit down and watch it with me as well. And I noticed... Oh my God, really? Yes, yes. Oh, well, she's not going to want to watch another movie that we're reviewing ever. (laughs) Um, And it was kind of funny. Sergeant Tina, played by Amy Maticio, uh, I, I, I was like, man, this girl looks familiar to me. And it's because she is in another equally amazing film... Called Vampire Dog. <laughs> yes, yes, it's a terrible, terrible movie. It's a kids' movie. It's this, this that one's supposed to be a family movie. It's still a terrible movie. Uh, but Norm Macdonald plays the voice of the Vampire Dog, so I guess there's that. So, anyways, um, so I'm watching this movie and and I'm looking over at Jen uh, and I'm like. You know, the movie isn't exactly bad. And now, now this was about 30, 32 minutes into the one hour and 18 minute film. Okay. So we're just barely over feature length here. <clears throat> and I'm like, it's, it's not that it's bad per se. It's just so, so terribly mediocre. The writing, it's just okay. The actors... They're just okay. The directing, it's competent, you know. Um, there, there's definitely talent there that needs to be um, guided and molded into something a little bit more um, pro, pro, oh, I, I don't know, something a little bit more productive, I guess, would be, or fruitful. I think this guy... Uh, I think Lil Dean would make an excellent uh, second unit director um, in a bigger in a bigger budget film. I, I truly do, and I think that he could get a lot of support and everything, and learns and and learn some even better techniques, and could probably get somewhere someday. But then we get into the last twenty minutes of the film, where you get stupid taglines like "Here comes the fuzz" and. <laughs> The Wolf Cop Mobile and a spray painted car in like two hours. Um, and chicks, uh, or chick, you know, willing to just blatantly have sex with a werewolf just because, and the werewolf doesn't think anything of it. Um, I, <laughs> I just like, really? And then look, I, I, I am all for if a woman wants to bear herself for film, cool. If she would like to respectfully decline and they insert a body double, cool. But if you're going to insert a body double, could you please make it a believable body double? <laughs> because otherwise, it, you're just you're not helping anything. So, so there's that. And then you get to the last like 10 minutes of the movie. Um, and it just completely falls apart. It, I, every single thing that it had been building up to was just the, nothing paid off. All the mediocrity just went to hell in a fucking handbasket and nothing could be done with it. The makeup and special effects for the budget and for the style that it was done, I'll give it props for it. It was pretty interesting. Um, 
Transformations a la Hemlock Grove. So I thought that was at least um, a nice nod there, if you will. But this thing just really cannot sustain the weight of its own crap. 1.75. Yeah! That's, 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 That's the... You know, 1.75 for effort. That's what you get. (laughs) There you go. Well, I gotta say, this movie makes just about as much sense as a decent porno. (laughs) I'm just a mediocre actor doing a mediocre film. But instead of the wolf getting his strength from blowjobs or sex, he gets it from booze. (laughs) That's all you needed. I mean, if this movie was going to be a porno, you just needed to be... That was supposed to be his werewolf transformation. You know, I'm going to be a werewolf. S my D. Other than I'm just going to drink myself and, you know, that's going to make give me my werewolf strength. And because it, it was it was shot kind of like a porno, like with the really cheesy, really bad jokes and puns and one liners. It honestly felt like you're watching a softcore porn just without the porn until you get to the werewolf sex in the jail. It kind of it seems like. He was wanting to make a porno, and then they ran out of money. And they're like, well, shit, maybe we should just try to make this into a real movie. That's why you have the 75-minute runtime or the 78-minute runtime. But I will say that they had some really cool gore uh, gore effects and violence, you know, that I thought was pretty impressive and well-executed. In fact, the only time I laughed is when he they're in a barn and the werewolf rips off a guy's face and throws his face at a car or at his car and the windshield wipers are going and the guy the other guy's in the car and like freaking out because the guy's face is stuck in the windshield wiper as it's going he's trying to knock it off the car that was hysterical unfortunately that was the only time I laughed every other time I was either like okay I was kind of impressed by you know some of the story elements I was kind of getting into it I was impressed by what he was trying to achieve with the movie and like the again the story elements but really the execution and the writing itself was just very very disappointing for one thing and I think ultimately actually two things that ultimately puts a bad taste in my mouth uh, in regards to this movie is that I couldn't care less about the hero I mean, they make him out to be such an asshole, and he's not funny. There's no redeeming qualities to him. To me, it actually feels like he really needed some kind of redeeming quality in a way. You kind of had to care. If it wasn't for, like, an emotional caring or attachment, he had to be a badass, like Ash, or funny, and he really wasn't any of those things. But most importantly, you cannot force cult status with not coming across as just plain old sad and that's what this movie felt like especially it felt like it was trying to be a cult movie when really it just comes across as trying really 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 desperately hard to be a cult movie and unfortunately it fails i give this one a 1.5 i will say that on rotten tomatoes i think it's at 60 percent, which just barely makes it fresh so there are people out there that do enjoy this movie, and I can see why. It's just, it, it was just trying way too hard to be something without being its own thing. So 1.5 out of 5 for me. Very good. All right, where do you want to go from here, sir? Poltergeist. 
All right, Poltergeist, 2015 American horror film, um, also available in 3D. Don't waste your money. <clears throat> Directed by Gil Keenan, written by David Lindsay Abair, and produced by Sam Raimi. This is a complete reboot of Steven Spielberg's and uh, Toby Har- Hooper's 1982 film. This one, however, stars Sam Rockwell, Rosemary DeWitt, Jared Harrison, Jane Addams. Um, all right, so this is really a completely competent and technologically um, recent version of Poltergeist. You are not getting anything new here um, in terms of the overall meat of the story. Got a little girl, she can talk dead people, gets sucked in the TV, the tree attacks kids, house eventually gets blown up, the whole nine yards. Um, well, blown up instead of sucked into the ground, whatever, you, you know. <clears throat> um, where this movie, I think, is, quite frankly, genius, is in the, it's in the minutiae. Okay, so instead of a successful, uh, happy family in a nice new developmental community here, uh, which is what you had in the original one, this is family downsizing, getting into something that they can just barely afford as it is. Dad, played by Sam Rockwell, is has been laid off. He's lost his he's lost a really good paying job. Uh, Mom is looking to have uh, played by Rosemary DeWitt is looking to possibly have to go back to work, whereas she was trying to be an aspiring writer. Uh, and then the, and you get to kind of see little windows into the lives of people who, you know what? It's not all fucking, it, it's not all rainbows and fucking gummy bears, as I like to tell people when it's time to get serious about shit. And this movie plays that up in spades. And I'm sorry, I think Sam Rockwell did just a fan-fucking-tastic job of virtually carrying the entire movie on his shoulders from an emotional perspective. And also, I think his a lot of his deadpan and a lot of his cynicism... Most people, when I saw it in the theater, there was there were some chuckles at some of the one-liners that he had, but then others were kind of quiet and everything, uh, just kind of watching it. And I was like, "Man, you're missing it. This is gold. This is somebody who's literally going downhill, and in in certain ways, kind of taking his family with him. And yet, the existence of this entire main thread that is the whole poltergeist, pardon me, the whole poltergeist phenomenon." is what it is kind of like the salvation for the whole family even though they don't realize it. So that's where I think this movie does things really really well. Where the movie falters is in doing stupid stuff for the sake of 3D, like a drill coming through the wall and, stu- and stuff like that. And I didn't even see the movie in 3D, but you could tell the gimmick was in play. Um, doing stupid stuff with clown dolls and stuff like that um, was really just there simply to scare teenagers. And 
they didn't need to do those kinds of things because when they actually got into the meat of the plot and really getting into it and actually bringing in the the psychic mediums and stuff like that, they were doing that part of the story carried on and the characters who were coming in the the student who's really kind of just a skeptic and they're just clearly there for an easy a in his research and stuff until all of a sudden you know he almost gets his face drilled off you know well now he's a true believer it's those kinds of things you know um the psychic and stuff who who is comes in and the way that they played it off instead of using zelda from the previous series um well of course she's dead now so i mean what are you gonna do but um how they introduced that side of it and brought it into play all of those things were good but the gimmickry really hurt the movie and it was totally unnecessary and completely draws you out of it and unfortunately there's a major gimmick play at the very end of the movie that hurt it a lot the other thing that i didn't like is and small spoiler for the end of the movie i mean again this is a remake so most people have probably seen this already at the very end of the film, when the family, when the Bowen family is actually trying to leave, see the Bowen family with their Sony TV in the living room? See, it all comes back together now. Um, the entire movie, no one is in the neighborhood. The neighborhood is empty until the last 10 seconds of the movie. And, oh, and then people start coming out of their houses? Really? Really? Okay. So that, was, that, that really just irked me. At the end of the day, very competent remake, technologically up to date, and I loved the minutia of this. But unfortunately, um, stupid shit that didn't need to be in there and gimmicks. Go uh, take what could have been a, just a spectacular movie, bring it down to a 3.75. Definitely like this movie. And if you've never seen it and this is your introduction to the poltergeist phenomenon, I think you'll like it. If you have seen it and would like to see a... Uh, decent update, then you'll be happy to. Was you your got, theater Ken? packed when you saw it? Yes, it was. It was full. Oh, I did cool. a double feature. I did. Uh, uh, I went on Sunday uh, after work, and I did Poltergeist first, and then and then I did Poltergeist first, and then uh, Tomorrowland. That was probably the best <laughs> best thing for you to do. <laughs> that, that's what I did. And I was, after leaving Tomorrowland, I was like, think. Fucking God, I went and saw Poltergeist first because I want to get the hell out of here. <laughs> yeah, so Poltergeist. I found this movie to be rather enjoyable. I was looking forward to seeing this, not because of it being a remake of Poltergeist, but because of the stylish direction of Gil Keenan. And he was the director of Monster House from 2006. And despite the many flaws of the Poltergeist remake... I enjoyed seeing the movie played out through the perspective of the young son. To me, it added a fresh take on the story. And I'm not sure if it's the studio's or the filmmaker's fault, but the jump scares are too reminiscent of a generic teen horror flicks. And to me, that's what really hurt this movie, was the jumps and the scares. And it took took away from Gil Keenan's stylish direction from the kid's point of view, where it's supposed to be more of like a build-up to the scares and the genuine fear of terror and horror than just like a quick fright that's just there and over and done with. And again, like, you know, what would have been better, what would have fit better within the confines of this type of story and how it's being portrayed is that if it, if more of a buildup 
or the time was taken on the horror elements of the film or of the story. For example, I think they could have taken cues from Keenan's well-executed and very atmospheric Monster House. But overall, there is fun and excitement found in this movie. And due to the movie's jumping right into the story and the mayhem, it does bypass setting up the family dynamic, which to me is where the film needed more exploring. I wanted to care more about these characters, mainly the family. And luckily, whenever they release the Blu-ray, he's gonna, there's gonna, they're releasing an extended cut, which I think they're adding, it's going to be like 10 minutes to the first half of the movie, which is supposed to add a little bit more depth to the characters and uh, more of an emotional level. But most importantly, what really I think drives the heart or the spirit of this movie is that Gil Keenan loves the original Poltergeist film, and he's been wanting to share that love with the new generation of moviegoers. And that is why he made Poltergeist. It's for those young folks out there who have not seen or will not watch the original Poltergeist just because it came out 30 years ago. So, which is a shame, but let's face it, unfortunately, kids are like that these days. I give this one 3.5 out of 5. It definitely has its faults, but I'm really pulling for the extended cut. Hopefully it'll have that depth that I want, because... They also started throwing in some characterization and, and story and character elements between the the guy who comes in to get the poltergeist out of the house. You know, they try to set him up as an in-depth character, giving you giving you a look into, you know, what drives his character, which you really don't need because it takes away from the overall story. Whereas in the original Poltergeist, when Gina comes in, I think that was her name, Gina something. When she comes in, she's just the creepy old woman that's going to help this family. And that's really all you know about her. And that kind of added to the, 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 the spookiness of the movie. And I think that's also what this movie needed. Not an additional character with a background for the audience to deal with when there's already this big story that's going on that that needs our undivided attention which is again why i give this movie 3.5 out of 5 so i'm actually glad matt you enjoyed this yay well, i'm glad it all worked out for the best all right so last but not least um or maybe depending on how you look at it <laughs> um tomorrowland this is of course the 2015 american science Fiction mystery adventure film. It's directed by Brad Bird and co-written and produced by Bird and Damon Lindoff. It stars George Clooney, Hugh Laurie, Britt Robertson, Rafi, Rafi Cassidy, uh, and yeah, pretty much just those people. There's other people in it like Tim McGraw and, and, and Key of uh, Key and Peele, but uh, you know, whatever. All right, so what we have here is a stylized fantasy film that is heavily influenced by the way by the philosophies of Walt Disney and where he initially or not initially where he ultimately had wanted to take the Walt Disney Company and what what we know today as Walt Disney World and the spirit of that and put it into a family film 
And you do that by having a young kid by the name of Frank Walker who is going to the 1964 World Fair to show off his invention, and the, which is a jetpack. And so the idea here is that you see the struggle that this kid is going through and how, and how bright he is and how unabashedly optimistic he is. And how much he believes in not just himself, but the world as a whole. And these are the things that get him into Tomorrowland. Flash forward, you know, 50 years. And we now have a young girl um, by the name of Casey. And she is trying to do anything and everything she can to keep her NASA engineer dad in his position at Cape Canaveral. This ultimately leads to her own glimpses of Tomorrowland and her adventure to get to Tomorrowland and find out what it's all about. From there... Mystery ensues and shenanigans come about and really interesting interplay and character development is there. And you can see, even from the very beginning of the film, that there is a definite rapport between George Clooney and Britt Robertson, who play Frank Frank Walker as an adult and Casey Newton, respectively. I personally really, really enjoyed this movie. Um, and it really, and, and I see all these people who are, um, who aren't, in, who are basically attempting to hold the movie to a higher standard that doesn't exist. Because, and they take like, Brad Bird and they're always throwing like the Incredibles at you and all that kind of stuff. And you're taking something from the world of Pixar and trying to compare it to a live action film of another original property of another original IP nearly a decade later. And it's apples and oranges more, more to the point I'm getting really, really sick of people trying to take a family film. It is a straight-up family film. This is not the kind of thing that's supposed to get, uh, you know, best picture shit and stuff like that. And then trying to compare it to the best picture nominees of last year. uh, Or whatever they think is going to be the best picture nominees of this upcoming year. You... Everybody, the, the biggest flaws to the film are found in the, in the final act, specifically from the time they go to France on, okay? Um, there's a big, huge thing where, you're, where people feel like they're getting lectured and stuff like that, and it's just, and it's, oh, it's the same egomaniacal stuff that you always hear and all this kind of stuff, and then they, you watch how it plays out, and you see, and, and good triumphing over evil, because of hope and optimism and you know a, a zeal for life and whatever. And the thing is is that they everybody seems to forget that it's not you're not being preached at as an adult. It's being informed as a kid. 
because kids don't they don't watch the news and they don't understand uh, global geopolitical spectrum and things of that nature. They it, this is something that gives them that kind of a view and in such a stark in your face kind of contrast that that's the obstacle to overcome. And I think the entire point of that was lost on virtually everybody. That's not to say that it's not without its faults, because I think that while it was aspiring to show what true optimism can do, I think that it was too heavy handed on both sides to help to, to really solidify that point. And I think that the way that they were building up the idea behind what Tomorrowland was and the way it could have been and then what it ultimately was, there was no payoff in the Tomorrowland landscape. The vast majority of the film takes place in our world. And I think that it was, I think that was more of a disappointment. And I think that that is kind of where a lot more of the negativity in terms of that comes from. And I can understand that, especially when you see in the last act of the film how Tomorrowland is degraded versus what you see at the beginning of the film. And it creates a huge plot hole because Tomorrowland should never be degraded. Um, Even if you want to try and say, oh, but without all the bright minds and everything to keep it lush and full of life, it too would fade. And that's not quite that that doesn't quite fly with me. Um, I could see how it might not have that same zeal uh, as it does at the beginning of the film, but it wouldn't be so dilapidated, I don't think. And so it's those kinds of things that do hurt the film a lot. But in terms of the fun, in terms of the fantasy, in terms of the message and in terms of comparing that to Walt's vision and Walt's dream, I think it's a great movie. And I will give this one 3.75 as well. It's certainly not without its flaws, but it is a great family film. Your kids are going to love it. And the rapport with the characters is definitely on point. Now, I must branch off because this movie was damn near fucking ruined for me. On two points. One, this was a 9.45 showing. Now, granted, it's Memorial Day weekend, so sure, you might have some kids who stay up later. But please, for the love of fucking God, if your kid starts crying, don't shush him and hold him in the fucking theater. You take your goddamn happy ass and the fucking crying ass piece of shit kid out into the fucking hallway. I literally had to yell at them. I missed part of the movie. I missed like 30 seconds of the movie yelling at these people to get them to leave. Also, if you're an exhibitionist couple in your late 30s and you want to fuck in a movie theater in a 945 showing, don't do it in the second row. And if you're going to do it in the second row, could you please not sit directly behind me so you're kicking the fucking chair? Move one seat over so at least I don't know you're doing it. I mean, what the fuck is your goddamn problem? Once I started yelling at the kid, they finally got the message and they got, because they figured, I guess they figured they were next. And I could literally, like, they weren't even trying to hide it. I could hear he was going at it so fucking hard on the chick. I could hear him rubbing his hand up and down her leg. As he was setting her in his lap, she kept bumping the back of the chair. Cause I Matt, thought Matt, Tomorrowland, Matt, Disney, Walt Disney, Tomorrowland. Tomorrowland, I just, get back. Th- I'm serious. This, th- <laughs> I was so fucking pissed off for part oh, of the man. movie. 
Well, this, I this this happened to me. I just God God. Oh my well, God. Well, that wouldn't be the only hard penis you turn soft. Oh, I swear to God. At least take it to the back row, right? Could you take it to the back row? We're or not sitting not directly even in a of... Disney movie. <sighs> Period. Yeah. But yeah. wow. Um. Okay. Three point seven five. <laughs> Um, okay. <laughs> Hang on, let me get back into the zone. I was that was that's funny. Uh, graphic visuals for sure. Okay, for now, I think Tomorrowland will be known as Brad Bird's most disappointing film. To not, I mean, obviously not to everybody, but in my mind, it will be known as Brad Bird's most disappointing, disappointing film. And I can list. Everything that I found wrong with the film, like all the exposition, and I honestly really didn't care for the lead actress at all that much. I mean, she's a nice girl, and I can tell she tried, and obviously, you know, a lot of people enjoyed her performance. I just thought she had the spunk, but she didn't have the characterization. But again, I can rag on that, I guess. But I think that the real problem is the storytelling itself. It has the dazzling visuals and the fresh, fantastic ideas, but the screenplay itself doesn't know how to utilize those dazzling visuals and fresh, fantastic ideas in the confines of a compelling and fascinating story. Really, when it comes down to it, there is just too much exposition and reminders that the sky is not just the limit but you can go further and as you go further inspire others as well there was just so much of that stuff throughout the entire movie it was very heavy-handed it's worse than heavy-handed i don't know maybe what's i don't know what three levels up from heavy-handed is i don't even know what that i i don't know very 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 heavy-handed i don't know if that works but yeah for this sure why not they relied on that uplifting notion to drive the heart of the story instead of it being a good story that drives the heart of the film. And with that good story, you would have good characters, which would also drive the heart of the film. And that's what I felt that this movie was lacking. The whole idea that it's the young kid wanting to be an inventor, you know, the kid was cute, the kid was smart, he was a good actor, but it was just everything after it, the whole adventure, the the adventure getting to George Clooney, the adult George Clooney, and then him and the girl going off to Tomorrowland. It was just kind of like one thing after another, one inspiring moment and one inspiring speech after another, and then next thing you knew, the movie kind of has like a, a a darker tone than one would expect. And it just really didn't mesh well. So I give this one 2.75 out of 5. All right then. 2.75 out of 5. Okay, so that brings us to the end of the movies. And next week's movies are going to be San Andreas, which is in the theaters, Ex Machina, also in the theaters, and Rabbit Proof which is on Netflix Instant. So, I think that's it, and that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? 
Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are still the SLS cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can find us on Twitter at the SLS cast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at nitwit12345. You can climb aboard the information highway, super highway, as it were. Track down Tim on Twitter if that's your thing. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. So until next week, this is Matt saying that thanks to Sam Rockwell, I get to say this. I used to break dance. I can do some good James Brown footwork. But now I think I've danced too much. My girlfriend made fun of me. Enough with the dancing. And this is Tim saying that if I ever catch you doing it in the same movie theater, I will not only douse you with gallons upon gallons with pickle juice, but I will then douse you with gallons upon gallons with gasoline and light you on fire. Of course, that is after you have been basted with pickle juice. Take care, guys, and talk to you next week. again for listening to the SLS cast with your hosts Matt and Tim. Remember that you can find us at slscast.com at the SLS cast for Twitter, also on Facebook, and you can only subscribe on iTunes. Thanks again for listening.